Scholars have disagreed about the interpretation and the application of the fourth servant song in Isaiah for as long as we have been reading it. Now, this does not mean that we can't understand what it says, but it does mean that I don't think we can fully uh, claim to fully grasp everything that this servant song means, okay? So we, I think we can get at what it says, but no matter what I say here today, we're not going to exhaust everything that this servant song means for us. There's just so much meaning. As we've moved through the servant songs, the four of them, this is the last one, we've con- concluded that they do, in fact, point us to Jesus. And this becomes even more pronounced in this fourth servant song. And if it does point to Jesus, we actually shouldn't be that surprised that no matter what we say about this servant song, it will never be enough to describe the reality of God in Christ, nor will it ever be exact, because Jesus is like that. Jesus is greater than any description we can apply to him. We will say one thing about him, make one conclusion about him, and we will automatically be leaving something else out, won't we? It's impossible to say everything that there is to say about Jesus. Now, this is even more true when we confront the mystery of his suffering, death, and resurrection, and the mix of human and divine elements in it. Just think about it for a moment. Did Jesus die at the hands of sinful human beings? Was he betrayed? Was he put on trial, and did powerful people see to it that an angry mob was mobilized against him? Yes. But wasn't it also God's plan for Jesus to die? Yes. Now, did Jesus, did he suffer in solidarity with all suffering ones, all victims? Yes, he did. But didn't Jesus also die to save us from sin? Yes. Wasn't he an example to us in his willingness to go to the cross, an example for us to follow? Absolutely. But didn't he also die in our place? Not as an example, but in our place, so we didn't need to. Taking the punishment for all sin upon himself, so that we would not have to bear the punishment for that sin. Well, that's also true. But wasn't his death in order for him to defeat death itself and be raised on the third day? Yes, that's true. But aren't we supposed to die and rise with Christ, die to an old life of sin and be raised to a new life in righteousness? Well, that's true as well. And we could go on and on like this. There's so much to say about Jesus. Now, when we've got interpretive problems with a text and problems of applying scripture, that never means we should avoid that scripture. Nor should should we say it's too hard to understand and simply just gloss over it. We can do that sometimes. We also, I don't, think we, I don't think we should simply decide for ourselves individually what I think it means and ignore other possible interpretations either. Instead, I think what we need to do is lean in and learn from the multiplicity of meaning that's found there. I feel like when we have a text like we do here that resists easy interpretation, We are in some ways closer to God with this text because God resists easy interpretation. Whenever we might think we've got God figured out, that's probably when we are in trouble. God is bigger than our understanding of him. 
The word we search for as we look at a text like this, I think, is the word awe, or what would have been in the King James Version been translated as fear. We may very well be afraid as we interpret and apply this text, because as we do that, we might think, we could be way off base here. We may be wrong about it. But actually, I think the greater fear is that what we find in this text is in fact true. That the servant suffered terribly, and his suffering was simultaneously at least three things, and probably far more, and three things that are hard for us to grasp. The first is that his suffering is in some ways our fault. We are guilty for it. The second is that his suffering is in fact to release us from our guilt. And the third, that his suffering is somehow God's divine plan. Now, the interpretive problems in this text are compounded by some translation issues, as usual in these servant songs, as we found. Um, At the very beginning, verse 13 says, See, my servant shall prosper. If you look in the New International Version and most other translations, English translations, it won't have the word prosper. It will say, my servant will act wisely or shall act wisely. The New English Translation is actually, my servant will succeed. And that's maybe perhaps the closest to the intent of the Hebrew, which conveys that the servant will not fail in his mission. So prospering in this is not actually about monetary wealth. It's not that Jesus is going to have lots of money. Okay, that's not what it's talking about at all. It's actually about his accomplishment. He prospers in his accomplishment in that he will accomplish his salvation mission. He will be successful. So wisely and successful are maybe the better translations here. Then we get this phrase, exalted and lifted up. It's actually a phrase that, when it's together like this, only appears four times in the entire Hebrew scriptures. And all four of those times are in Isaiah. The other three times, it's always in reference to worshiping God. We are going to exalt and lift God up. Here it refers to the servant. As we jump ahead to the Gospels in John's Gospel, this idea of lifting up gets a double meaning. Jesus is lifted up into the place of worship and praise and glory. Jesus is now due glory and praise. He is high and lifted up. But in John's Gospel, he is also literally lifted up on the cross. And what looks like shame and suffering to the world is actually the beginning of his exaltation, which will culminate in his resurrection. So that's just the first verse. But the next bit that follows is an opening section that actually sets up the reaction to the suffering servant. People are astonished by him. Well, what are they astonished by? First, it says that so marred was his appearance or so disfigured he was. This is actually quite difficult to interpret because is this really saying he was so disfigured in his suffering that he became unrecognizable to anyone? Probably not. What's more likely is that this means that he undergoes the full suffering bodily, mentally, and spiritually. And to see that and behold what he goes through is truly terrible. 
Essentially, I think what this is saying is that what he went through is inhuman or subhuman. It should never really be experienced by anyone. The text goes on, he shall startle many nations and kings will shut their mouths or another way of saying that, kings will be speechless because who, who has ever heard of a Messiah who suffers? I mean, we have. We've had 2,000 years of hearing about the suffering Messiah. But back then, no, a Messiah was supposed to be a conquering king. Who's ever heard of a Messiah who suffers? Everyone will be surprised. Everyone will be startled. So it says, who, who would ever believe that this is the way the arm of the Lord would be revealed? And the arm of the Lord is a way of talking about God's means of salvation. Every time in Isaiah where the arm of the Lord phrase is used, it's talking about the way in which God is going to save his people. And now here in this text, it's used again, but the way in which the arm of the Lord is going to function is through the suffering of God's Messiah. That's unbelievable. That would be totally unexpected. Chapter 53, verse 2 talks about the servant being a young plant or root growing up out of dry ground. This is like saying he came out of nowhere. He was, it's not like he was a solid oak tree or something whose, whose growth and whose roots were obvious and had been there all along. Uh, nor had he been cultivated by the establishment to be the leader. He just sprang up. A young plant or a root just out of nowhere. His earthly origins are totally unexpected. His earthly origins are in Nazareth, in backwater Galilee, where nobody really wants to go. Even though his true origin is a heavenly one. From an earthly perspective, it looks like, where did this person come from? There was also really nothing external about him that would draw anyone to him. He was the opposite of what great people are supposed to be like. John Oswald, in his commentary, he puts it like this. This is a fairly long quote, but I think it's really helpful. A baby born in the back stable of a village inn. This would shake the Roman Empire? A man quietly coming to the great preacher of the day, asking to be baptized. This is the advent of the man who would be heralded as the savior of the world? No, this is not what we think the arm of the Lord should look like. We were expecting a costumed drum major to lead our triumphal parade, and our eyes are caught and satisfied by superficial splendor. This man, Isaiah says, will have none of that. As a result, our eyes flicker across him in a crowd, and we do not even see him. His splendor is not on the surface. And those who have no inclination to look beyond the surface will never even see him, much less pay him any attention. Isn't that good? His splendor is not on the surface. Those who have no inclination to look beyond the surface will never even see him, much less pay him attention. At verse 4 of chapter 53, we get a shift. We've already seen that the servant suffers, and we 
we've known that this suffering is somehow connected to our salvation. We've acknowledged that this is unexpected, that normally a Savior, a Messiah, would lead from a place of power, and this is a suffering servant Messiah, three words that really shouldn't go together. Beginning at verse 4, we learn that he does not simply suffer alongside us in regular human suffering, but that his suffering is both because of us and for us. The text says he has borne our infirmities and carried our diseases. Now, if we knew nothing else about the rest of the servant song and we knew nothing else about Jesus, this could easily mean that he has suffered in the same way that we have, right? He's had the same sicknesses, the same diseases or infirmities that we might have as human beings. But as we read on, we find that it's far more than that. Verse 4 actually displays the conventional wisdom of the time. When someone suffered, the ancients believed it was because of something that they had done. The ancients believed that if you were sick then it was because of some sin in the past, or maybe even your parents' past. We see this spelled out quite clearly in the book of Job, where Job's friends come and tell him, you must have done something because you're suffering so badly. Job, though, holds to his guns. We also find it in the Gospel of John, when a blind man receives his sight from Jesus, but before that happens, the the question comes with reference to the man's blindness. uh, Who sinned that this man was born blind? Is it him or is it his parents? Displays the conventional wisdom of the time. This way of thinking seems absolutely abhorrent to us today, doesn't it? Right? Like, someone's sick, well, it must be because you sinned. I mean, we, we actually do not believe that but it's just reflecting what was conventionally thought of in that time. Now, that way of thinking, though, it explains a casual reading of Isaiah 53, verse 4. We accounted him, the servant, we accounted him struck down by God and afflicted. Right? He's suffering, so it must must be God who's done that. Must be because of something he's done. We can see this attitude still today, even though we find it abhorrent with relation to sickness. We we don't find it abhorrent when it comes to crime, for instance. If you know nothing about someone who's given the death sentence, it's perfectly natural to think, well, they must have done something absolutely terrible, right? Jesus was given the death sentence. That's exactly what he was given. So human wisdom would say, therefore, he must be God-forsaken. If you know nothing about him except that he was crucified, your assumption would be that he was tortured and executed for his sins. But verse 5 says something different in our text. It says, he was wounded for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities, Not his. He did not suffer for anything he had done. He suffered for our sins. He died for what we have done. He died in our place instead of us. And we might ask all kinds of questions about this. But why does anyone anyone have to suffer or die for anyone's sins? And the answer to that is justice. Or simply, what is right? 
Let's think about this for a moment. What, what should we do with a person who takes someone's life, for instance? What would be right? What would be fair? What should we do with someone like Hitler? What would be the right thing? What should we do with someone who preys upon children? What would be just? Should there be some kind of punishment? What about repeat offenders who never seem to learn their lesson and just keep doing it over and over again? How many chances should we give? What would be fair? What would be right? And then what about smaller things? What about theft, for instance? What would be the right thing to do there? And, and what do we do with some of the commandments? What do we do with something like covetousness? And what about that commandment about honoring our parents? Are people doing that perfectly? And what should we do with that, that pesky first commandment that asks us to love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength? Each time we don't do that, each time we ignore God, each time we put him on the back burner, what do we do with that situation? What would be fair? What would be right? What do we do with any sin? What would be the right thing to do? What would be the just thing? And then we kind of have to ask the question, well, what in fact do we deserve? Because we might want to say, well, I'm a good person. I deserve a good life with good things. Is that really true? Because then what is our measurement for that? How are we measuring that? Is it our feelings that we measure that by? Let's just take one measurement. Let's take one commandment and use that as our single measurement for deciding whether we are a good people deserving of good lives. And I'm just going to pick the fourth commandment. Let's take the fourth commandment and use that as our measuring stick. Everyone know what the fourth commandment is? See, we're already sunk, right? <laughs> Remember the Sabbath and keep it holy. Let's use that one. Let's just, let's just worry about obeying one commandment, just that one. We can't even do that, can we? The thing is, we have a measure. We think we don't have one, but we do. We have a measure, and we fall hopelessly short of it. Now, you can call the measure the law, but you can also say the measure is righteousness. Doing what is right, being in right relationship with God. And you know what? None of us are righteous. None of us. Are we really going to talk about what we deserve for the kind of lives that we live? If we go down that road, then we need to ask the very scary question of whether we are living the life that God envisions for us. What do we deserve for the way we live? What would be fair? What would be right? You see, it's the amazing grace of God that he does not give us what would actually be fair. Hear that? It's the amazing grace of God that he does not give us what would actually be fair to us fallen human beings who can never attain righteousness on our own. Instead, he gives us Jesus Christ. And the reason he doesn't give us what would be fair is because he loves us. God deals in grace. 
but he also deals in absolutely perfect righteousness, perfect fairness, perfect justice. And we sometimes want to forget about that. In the servant, God's perfect justice and perfect grace come together, and they're both satisfied. It is by his perfect grace that the servant stands in our place to receive the full consequences of our sin and satisfy God's justice. Upon him was the punishment that made us whole, and by his bruises we are healed. Jesus suffered and died in our place, and in doing so, he set us right with God. The punishment that should have rested on us instead went to him, which means that we get to start over with God. We are now seen to be righteous because of this exchange that's taken place, even though we are not righteous. Verse 6 summarizes this by saying that we are just like sheep, it says. We easily go astray, distracted, so easily by the next patch of yummy grass that's over there. We so easily go astray. We've gone off on our own, paying no heed to the shepherd. Think about how offensive that is to God, who is the good shepherd. We've turned away from God, gone astray, gone our own way and not God's way, ignored God and done our own thing. When what God has wanted to do is protect us and care for us and and, and be there for us. And we just, oh no, that looks good over there. I'm going to go do that instead of being with you. Think of how offensive that is. Imagine if you treated our parents like that. Maybe that's why honor your parents is one of the commandments. Some children have treated their parents that way, and sometimes parents treat their children terribly as well. But imagine God is that perfect parent. Imagine if we treated our parents that way. Well, I'll just go off on my own. Forget you, your advice, your upbringing. I'm doing this. But that's how we treat God a lot of the time. Think of how offensive that is to God. That's the fundamental root of sin. This is why there's a call to repentance, because repent means turn. We've turned away from God, gone astray, gone our own way. It's not God's way. And we're called to turn back. This is the heart of the matter. This is our iniquity. That's what Isaiah calls it. He calls it our iniquity. He uses great words to talk about sin. Right? Transgression, iniquity. Like it really sounds like we've done something horrible. And the, the thing about our iniquity is we carry it around. So you can imagine that this, this book is our iniquity. Okay? And we keep adding to it. Over the years, keep adding to it, it gets heavier and heavier and heavier. And it's heavy enough to break us. And what does Isaiah say? The Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. We don't have it anymore. Why do you think Jesus said, come to me, all you that are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest? 
because he's removing our iniquity, our sin, and everything that weighs us down because of that. Verse 7 says that the servant was like a sheep as well, and not in the wandering off sense. (laughs) He was like a lamb to be sacrificed. And a silent one, he didn't say a word to stop it. He let himself be killed for us. He stood in the place of a sacrifice so that our sin could be removed. Verse 8 says that he was taken away by a perversion of justice. But didn't I just say that this was all to satisfy God's justice? See, now, this is one of the amazing ways that God works. Jesus' trial, suffering, and death was, in fact, a terrible thing. As we read the story in Holy Week coming up, we will hear the story yet again. And when we hear that story, it's actually a very human story. It's a story that is full of human sin. It's a story that portrays the failure of religion and politics. It's a story of a human justice system that completely fails, that gets twisted because people are afraid. But what does God do? What is amazing about God is that he works his entire plan through this, through this brokenness. While the human side of the equation is absolutely full of sin, evil, and injustice, this is the very way that God's justice gets done. This is what is amazing about this servant song. Everything is so unexpected in it. Jesus is the only one to have ever lived completely without sin, yet he is sentenced to death. That is a perversion of justice if I've ever heard one. Yet it was also God's gracious plan to satisfy divine justice. And the reason why? Because Jesus wasn't dying for his sins, he was dying for ours. This is the story, and so we get these lines in the servant's song, who could have imagined his future, for he was cut off from the land of the living. Who could have imagined this? And who could have imagined what comes next after it? Because he's dead on the cross. Yet what comes after is somehow new life. It was a perversion of justice, yet in verse 10, it also says it was the will of the Lord to crush him with pain. That See, that sounds terrible. I might have been with Isaiah, but up, at that, up to that point, I think, oh, crush him with pain, I don't know. It's what some biblical scholars have actually called divine child abuse, God against his son. I mean, that sounds terrible. And they're serious in saying that. But what those scholars miss is that while Jesus is the servant, and Jesus is the Messiah, and Jesus is the son, Jesus is, in the end, God. It's not that God took his son and said, well, off you go then, son. Go and die on the cross. It's that God put himself in the person of his son and put himself on the cross. God's purposes are accomplished by God putting himself 
in the place of suffering and death for our sakes. His grace is on display in this because this is God's self-offering. And we see how profound our sin is when we gaze upon him on the cross. We see how profound our sin is and how much God loves us anyway. Amen.